So we're continuing this morning our series that we're calling Understanding the Times, and I was, I was thinking this morning, uh, I've been the regular preacher here for 15 years, and I would guess 99% of the time we have walked through books of the Bible, and that's our, our standard operating procedure, but we're taking quite a bit of time here in this series to deal with some things that are going on in our world right now. And... To guide us in this discussion, I want to show you this is, uh, this is consistent with what we see in the, in the New Testament. In uh, the church at Corinth, where the Apostle Paul, uh, he, he started the church and he edified the church, he wrote to the church on several occasions, he visited the church, he was encountering what we would call worldviews that were contrary to the gospel. And as he encountered that, he wrote to the Corinthians to explain what he was doing. And he had to defend himself uh, against these, uh, uh, these naysayers from both outside and within the church. And so here's, here's how he addresses a little bit of this. He says, now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. That was some of the critique of Paul that when he's near with them, he's awful gentle, but when he goes away, he writes really hard words. He says, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. People are saying about Paul and the other uh, disciples with him, they're just, they're just like other men. They're, they're just walking according to, to manliness, to fleshliness, rather than something from God. Here's what Paul says, and this is what's key for us. For though we walk in the flesh, that is, we're humans, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Well, is he talking about raising up an army? Is he talking about military encounter with, with swords and shields and things? No, that's not the, the kind of fortresses he's talking about. He says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now that verse is used a lot in personal reflection that we need to take every thought we have captive to Christ. And maybe you're sitting at your computer and you shouldn't be going places that are unpleasing to the Lord and take that thought captive. And that's true, but it has nothing to do with what Paul's writing about. Paul is talking about the thoughts in what we would call worldviews or ideologies. And Paul is saying there are ideologies that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God, against the truth of God, against the gospel. And he says our mission is to use divinely given weapons to bring those ideologies under obedience to Jesus Christ. So think about the ideologies Paul had to come up against. One was Judaism. He writes about that in almost every letter, trying to respond to the gospel-denying purveyors of Judaism. Another was paganism. 
the Corinthian church were people who were brought to Christ from real paganism. They bowed down before idols, and he had to fight that ideology. We see later on in the New Testament, the apostle John writes against what is called Gnosticism. Now, he doesn't mention it by name, but it's pretty clear he is saying what he's saying because Christians are starting to buy into this worldview, this ideology called Gnosticism. Well, I'm persuaded if Paul were writing in 21st century America today, he would include in some of his letters something against what has come to be called cultural Marxism. So we're going to talk about that today. Probably you have heard the word Marxist. If you listen to any right-wing media, any news commentators, podcasts, the, one of the favorite labels to throw against the left is Marxist. And as I talk to people, it seems to me that a lot of Christians don't have a clue what Marxism really is and why that would be a pejorative slam. So today, we're going to talk about this, and we're going to talk about uh, how and why they are raising themselves up against the, the knowledge of God. So here's a little history lesson for you. You've probably heard of Karl Marx. Uh, Karl Marx was a, a German-Jewish fellow whose uh, father converted from Judaism to a liberal Lutheran religion, not because he was convinced it was true, but for his, his, uh, his business. So Marx was required to pack up and leave everything that he knew uh, and follow his dad into this new religion and this new city. And one wonders just how much impact that had on Karl Marx's philosophy for him to be uh, removed from his, his, uh, his friends, his, his, uh, his, the world that he knew, and to see the hypocrisy in his dad to do it merely for making money. Uh, Marx grew up and studied under a guy named George Wilhelm, Wilhelm Frederick Hegel. If you've ever studied Hegelian philosophy, uh, that's the guy, Hegel. I'm not going to get into Hegelian uh, philosophy because we'd be here for hours and you still wouldn't understand all of it, probably. But uh, Marx was a student of Hegel's and uh, I'm going to just kind of simplify as much as I can this, this worldview. Marx was a materialist. He was an evolutionist. He was a contemporary of Charles Darwin. Side note, he spent some time in London, was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, too. Uh, I think it's safe to say Spurgeon had no impact. Darwin had a lot of impact on Marx's thinking. Uh, he saw the world evolving. The world is progressing. History is moving toward a point of utopia. Everything is going to be great. But it's not great now because of capitalism. Because of this economic situation where you have owners and laborers, you have what he called the bourgeoisie and you have the proletariat. You have the ruling class and the working class. You have the oppressors and you have the oppressed. And as long as that is the economic system, Marx believed, there is going to be suffering and we're not going to reach utopia. So from his evolutionary model, his, his view that everything's progressing, that history's progressing, combined with his Hegelian philosophy, what's going to happen is there's going to be revolution. 
There's going to be revolt by the classes over here, the, the, the laboring class, the working class, the proletariat. They're going to revolt against uh, the owners and against the ruling class. And it's going to be violent. It's going to be ugly. But it's inevitable. And after that happens, then everybody will see the evils of capitalism and we will enter into utopia. As, a, as a, an atheist, he rejected all the religion of his parents. As an atheist, he was convinced that man is basically good. So if you remove the evils of capitalism, then everybody will get along wonderfully. He says, at that point, we'll have this as our motto, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Sounds great, right? So you do whatever you do to provide for others, and as people have need, then we just hand off to those who have need, and everybody gets along. And again, this is driven from a, uh, an idea that people are basically good. So I'm thinking, you know, he never saw a group of 10 children together. Right, you, you put a group of 10 children together, they're five-year-old, and think, okay, all of you get different stuff, and just sit back and watch, and what are they going to do? Oh, here, would you like a bite of my cookie? Here, can I share my toys with you? That's what happens, right? Obviously, just the opposite happens. Well, that's human nature. We're selfish at our core, but he didn't believe that. So, uh, oh, there's so much here. Okay, so... This is the essence of Marx's philosophy, and a lot of people bought it, especially in Europe. And Marx believed that once we got to this utopic state, at least four major things would be abolished, and he was all for it. The family would be abolished, because we would be sharing everything including each other. So the family is gone. Fa family is a, a, a method of capitalistic control of others. So a family, family will go away. The true communal communism uh, ideal of nobody's married to anybody, everybody is sharing everybody. That was, that was a Marxist view. Authority structures of all kinds will be eradicated. We don't need them. The government, which is evil, in their mind, in Marx's mind, the government will simply serve to administrate this distribution of everybody's stuff because everybody will be happy to do that. But we need some coordination, so that's what the government would do. Authorities of all sorts, all hierarchies would be completely eradicated. Authority is bad. Again, authority is a control instrument of, of capitalists. And the nations will be destroyed. There will all be one global nation. All that's going to come about as uh, this revolution occurs. So fast forward. This is in the uh, mid to late 1800s. Fast forward to close to the mid-1900s. And socialism has a really bad name in the Western world. Because men like Joseph Stalin took up the mantle of socialism slash communism, the, the political, the governmental expression of socialism. Joseph Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, they had murdered, executed hundreds of millions of people in the name of socialism slash communism. You know these stories, right? 
they're not being taught much in our schools, and there's a reason for that. The socialists of the mid-20th century were very concerned about something. They were concerned about the failure of socialism. But they were not concerned about the millions, hundreds of millions of executions. That wasn't the problem. That was expected. That was almost endorsed by Marx. What they couldn't understand is why the working class did not revolt against the ruling class. That didn't happen. It didn't happen anywhere. And they were, they were bemused. They were, they were dumbfounded. Why do people insist, especially in the West, on capitalism? Why do they insist on nationalism? Why don't they see, why didn't they see the oppression and respond against the oppressors? So there's a group, and I'm just going to lay some names here. I don't have time to walk you through all the attachments. You can look these people up, and, and we'll send out some articles and videos and things down the road here. But there's a group called the Frankfurt School from Germany. They had to flee Germany because of a man named Adolf Hitler, because they were mostly Jewish. The Frankfurt School, uh, there was a guy named Derrida in France, and some others. The, the Frankfurt School folks came to Columbia University in New York back in the earlier to mid-1900s. And they started reflecting on why the working class did not revolt against the ruling class. And they said it's because what Marx missed, what he missed in his philosophy was the power of culture. The power of society's traditions and principles, art and literature and so on. And the fact is that people in the West have a very strong sense of culture. And as they began to examine the Western culture to see what it was that tied all of us together in the West, they narrowed it down to one thing. And this is where it gets very personal for you and me. The common denominator of Western culture is Christianity. Christianity, the biblical worldview, is what had created Western culture. And the Marxists of the mid-20th century said, we have to obliterate Christianity. And for the last... 60, 70 years, they've been working very hard at it. And I would say they've done a pretty good job when you look at Western civilization today. So the way they're going to do this, and this is all, I mean, you can read all this stuff for free. Almost all these books and essays are online for free. The way we're going to do it is they're going to infiltrate what they call, what somebody called the four robes. Judges. We have to bring into the government in Western culture activist judges who are not tied to the Constitution, who are not tied to the, the rules that we've all agreed to, but are going to seek to overturn the Constitution. So that's one robe. Another robe are the professors, the university teachers. 
So they encouraged people to study Marxism and then bring that to our universities and colleges to overthrow traditional Western education and all the way down to kindergarten, for that matter. The politicians, they do wear robes occasionally on, uh, on cere at ceremonies and things. The politicians, we have to infiltrate the political system with those who agree with Marx and who hate uh, Christian worldview. And then the fourth group, which you've never seen in this church, but you have seen it in other churches, the other robe-wearing entity is the pastorate. So we have to fill the pastorate with people who will undermine historic Christianity so that the Western culture can be overturned. And then some of the other means to get in all of that is art. Uh, a guy named Marcuse was one of the Frankfurt School guys, and he said that, that uh, Marx completely missed the impact of art and literature on people. And so we've got to fill television shows and movies and music and, and painting and everything with sentiments that are directly opposed to the historic Christian worldview. Marcuse wrote and had the biggest influence in the early 1960s. Now think about what the 1960s are known for in America. We call it the sexual revolution. It can be directly tied to this man, Herbert Marcuse, because he also brought Freudian psychoanalysis together with Marxism and said, we need to destroy any semblance of Christian sexuality. And people were reading them. Maybe some of you read him in college and university in the 60s, and that sparked the sexual revolution to throw off all restraint because that is a Christian Western oppression. So they want to undo everything that matters to us. Think about the four things I mentioned earlier. The Bible teaches very clearly the importance of the family. It's right there in the opening chapters. Adam and Eve are told to come together and become one flesh. And not only is that talking about their sexual union, but the offspring of that union to form a family. This is what's going to happen. This is how God set it up. And all throughout the Bible, family is crucial. How are they going to undo the family? Well, we've got to destroy male headship. We've got to tell women that if you're just a housewife, you're enslaved, you're not really free to be authentic woman. You've got to separate parents from children and move toward handing over children to the state. And on and on, we could go down that list. I'm sure you're aware of those things. The idea of obliterating authorities, we see this all over, trying to undermine any what they would call hierarchy all the way along the line. Undo those layers of authority. And God says, obey authority, submit to authority. Submit to the governing authorities over you, the governors and the mayors and the president, submit to them. 
police enforcement, law enforcement, is part of preserving the authority structures, the legal system of our culture. And the Marxists said, we've got to overthrow all of that. Private property, I didn't mention this earlier, private property is crucial to capitalism. You have your stuff, I have my stuff. You realize private property is a biblical concept. There couldn't be stealing if there was not private property. So you have stuff and I'm not allowed to take your stuff. And I have stuff and you're not allowed to take my stuff unless you're my wife or my children. But everybody else, you don't get to take my stuff, that's stealing. Do you remember the story in Matthew 20 when Jesus tells the parable of a landowner who goes out and he hires some laborers and he says, I will agree to pay you this much if you do this much work. And a few hours later, he went and found some more guys sitting around and said, I'll pay you this much if you do this much work. And he gets to the end of the day and he finds a few more and he says, hey, I will pay you this much if you'll do this much work. And it was the 11th hour. There's only another hour of work to do. And there's the, all the controversy at the end because these, these people who were hired at the beginning of the day were jealous because those who were hired at the end of the day received the same pay. Now, the point of that parable is to, it, well, I'm not going to go that on time. The point of the parable is not what I'm about to say, but assumed in the parable is ownership of land and the truth that a laborer is worthy of his wages and that the landowner can pay his laborers whatever he wants to and the laborers can agree to it or not agree to it. All of that presupposes private property, ownership, laborers, and so on. That's biblical concepts. But according to Marxism, this is the evils of capitalism and the biblical Christian worldview. What about nations? Do you realize how central nations are to the gospel story in the Bible? Way early in the story, God creates nations. And all the way through the story are nations. God appoints nations. He sets up kingdoms. And Jesus is the ruler of the nations. As the story unfolds in the scripture, we are not going to become one global nation ever prior to his return. Because he's going to come back and judge the nations, presupposing we're not all one. Being part of a nation is not bad, it's not sinful, it's by design. But according to the Marxists, that is capital oppression to continue to have nations. And so the goal is to see the overthrow of governments and nations so that utopia could come and we can all gather around and sing Kumbaya and pass around all of our stuff. Because of course that's what will happen. A couple other important things that we need to know. So as these guys in the Frankfurt School and others in the, in the 50s and 60s are writing and thinking and pondering, they could not understand why the revolt hadn't happened. 
It, it really shocked their system. It was, it was, they were so sure, even before World War I, at the, the Russian, revo uh, Russian Revolution of, of sorts, that this was going to be, people were going to see the working class revolt in Russia, and then other countries would see, oh yeah, I'm mad at my leaders too. I'm mad at our owners too, and it's going to just bring this worldwide revolution. And it didn't happen, and they couldn't understand why. Part of their explanation was because Marx misunderestimated is that a word? Uh, I think George Bush used that, did he? Uh, misunderestimated the, uh, the power of culture. But the other thing that caught their attention was, you know, as capitalism continues to grow in Western civilization, everybody's getting richer. And they seem to like it. The standard of living is going up for everybody in America, North America, South America, Europe, Western Europe. The standard of living is going up and people seem to like that. And they said, well, wow, what, what, what are we missing here? What's going on? And finally, they came to the conclusion that because of the prosperity that capitalism brings to everybody, we're never going to see a revolt of the working class. Because the working class has been duped. We've been manipulated. We have all these structures all these institutions that make us think we're rich and happy. If only we knew we were oppressed, then we'd get angry and fight back. So they said, well, we have to figure out a way to help people know they are oppressed. If you're sitting here today and you don't feel oppressed, it's because you've been manipulated by the oppressors. And it's really effective. I mean, the oppressors are smart to give you more money, to give you more freedom, to give you more private property, to have a healthy, flourishing family, to have a good education, to be able to think, man, I could do just about anything I want to. They're really smart to manipulate you with all that stuff and make you think you're not oppressed. But you're oppressed, let me tell you, you are oppressed. So they said, how are we gonna create a sense of oppression? Well, think, think with me, back to the, pretend like you're alive in the 1950s, and if you were alive in the 1950s, you don't have to pretend. So you go back to the 1950s, and you look around at all of the institutions, let's say just in America. Think about business. Think about government. Think about churches. Think about colleges and universities. What is the one consistent authority in all of our institutions in 1950. Got something in your head? If you didn't think of this, as soon as I say it, you'll know it's true. The one thing consistent across the board of our hierarchies, of our leadership, of our, the, the, the people that really get to rise to the top in America are white, Christian, heterosexual males. Politicians, that's pretty much what they were, with a few exceptions. Professors, pretty much, with some exceptions. Business owners, right down the line. So they invented what has come to be called intersectionality. Just curious, how many of you have never heard of intersectionality? Yeah, okay, you need to know this. 
Intersectionality is basically take that group that I mentioned, the white, heterosexual, Christian, male, there's a few other adjectives, able-bodied, cisgender, that kind of thing, but I'm going to stick to some of this. So the white, Christian, heterosexual male is at, at the center of what's called the wheel of oppression. If you look this up this afternoon, just put it, Google it, and you'll come up with a hundred different pictures of the wheel of oppression. Look, you can look up online if you're not here with us right now. If you're here with me, stay here. Don't, don't look it up right now. So at the center of this wheel, the hub, is that, that white, Christian male that's talking about. Everybody else is removed from that center some degrees. So you could be black, Christian, heterosexual male. But the fact that you're black and not white, you're one step removed from the hub. What if you're female and black, but heterosexual? So you're two steps now. So you're a, a black female who's lesbian. Now you're three steps removed. And the further you get away from that hub, you have all of these intersections of oppression. This is being taught in universities and colleges and high schools everywhere. I mentioned this last night to my daughters and Abby who's taking classes at Pike Speak. Oh yeah, we, we saw that diagram. We heard about all that. She's like, I'm oppressed because I'm a woman. Now she's only a little bit oppressed because she only has one intersectional spoke. See, what they had to do, they had to create an oppressor and an oppressed class. And so for decades, they have been working to make the white, Christian, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, I don't know, make us the oppressors, and I say us because that's me, right? And everyone outside of that center is the oppressed. This is why you can have black men who are called racist today by other black people. Because if he's Christian and he's heterosexual, he's, he's supporting the hub if he says we shouldn't be homosexual and we shouldn't be these other things. And so there are black men who will call the conservative black man, you're a racist because you affirm white supremacy. Because that's what the hub represents. And the goal is to create chaos and violence and turn everything upside down. What we are seeing right now in the streets of Portland and Seattle and Chicago is this embodied. The violence... You hear the words they use? Revolution is on their tongue all the time. Why? Because they're acting out this very Marxist worldview. And they don't care if you call them hypocrites. They don't care if you try to expose their nonsense. Logic and rationality? No kidding, the, the Frankfurt School said this. Logic and rationality is Western civilization's manipulative tool to control people. So as soon as you call them out for being unreasonable, they say, no reason is just a tool you're using to suppress people who are not like you. You've seen last week, did you see the two plus two does not equal four movement? You laugh, it's happening. Two plus two doesn't equal four. That is oppressive and racist 
to say that two plus two equals four. And you say, well, you can't even use language if two plus two doesn't equal four. And they say, well, what are you talking about? We don't care about using language. We want power. We want to suppress the hub. The other thing that they invented in the 1950s and 60s to try to accomplish the purpose is what's called critical theory. Critical theory, if you've ever taken classes in, in college, university, that, are, that has the word studies in it, you have been influenced by critical theory. I would encourage all of you who are going to go to college someday, never take a class that has the word studies in it. Because the goal of critical theory is to take everybody who's not in that hub and critique them, not with objectivity, but with the, the intent of destroying that hub group. So women's studies is not so much about women, it's how evil men are. Multicultural studies are not, hey, let's explore all the wonderful cultures and nations God has created. It's not that. It's we have to destroy white man culture. Native American studies, all those different things. They're, they're, the, the objective, as they state it, is to tear down Western civilization. It's right there in, the, in their early writings. They're not even hiding it. Marcuse, again, wrote an essay called Repressive Tolerance. And he says, we must not tolerate any speech of those who contradict us. So use force or whatever is necessary to shut the mouths of those who uphold traditional Christian and Western values. So everything we're seeing right now of the, the left trying to shut down free speech, it fits their agenda, it fits their plan, their, their MO perfectly. They admit it. We must not tolerate anything that goes against what we're saying. Even though in our Constitution, right there, in our, in our Declaration, our Bill of Rights, free speech, right? It's there. The Marxists say, no, we don't care what's in the document. We must shut it down. So now that you're all depressed and hopeless, what do we do? Well, let's, we're going to continue to talk about that in weeks to come. A couple of thoughts for you here as we wrap this up. Number one, very practically, on November 3rd, you have the freedom in this nation to vote for the lawmakers of our land. Please vote. And please vote well. Now, apparently, I'm not allowed to tell you who to vote for while I'm standing on this platform. But can we, as Christians who will stand before Jesus Christ someday, can we vote for a platform or a politician who says that killing babies is a reproductive right? You realize we are going to give an account for our votes. I don't want to stand before the Lord Jesus and say, yeah, I voted for that one guy, and I know he was in favor of abortion, but I don't know what could come after the but that would make it comfortable for me on Judgment Day. That's sort of the top tier level as far as I'm concerned. But then the whole idea of taking as much money from people as they can in form of taxation 
and then redistributing it, that's stealing. The government can steal from us, and they do it all the time. We get so excited about the stimulus package. Um, I do. But in principle, think about what's happening there. You send a bunch of money to the government, and then they decide, in the goodness of their heart, to give it back. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful deal? How about they just let me keep it, and then I'll decide what to do with it. So be careful who you vote for. And we need to talk a lot more about that as, as Christians and as Front Range Alliance Church, I think. We have to speak up. The left wants to destroy our voice. They want to shut us up. We can't let them. We have to speak up. We have to speak up. Not here, and here, hear me very carefully here. If you've been sleeping, wake up. I'm not saying over here, left, Democrat, socialist, evil. Well, I'm almost saying that. But I'm not saying on the right is all the good people, Republican conservatism. This is not a patriotic thing for me. And it shouldn't be for you. This is not that America can do no wrong. No, it's not that at all. It's fighting for the kingdom of God, for the truth of God, for the worldview that is opposing the knowledge of God that we are to bring under obedience to Christ. So we don't oppose the left because of American patriotism. We do it because they are trying to destroy the kingdom of God. So we have to speak truth. We have to be unafraid to hold to the sanctity of marriage, heterosexual marriage, and the restriction of sexuality to a man and a woman who are married, and that the parents have the right and the obligation to raise their children and to educate their children, and that there is such a thing as private property, and it's not okay to take other people's stuff. It's not okay for the government to take other people's stuff. And to say that we are part of a nation and we're going to submit to the governing authorities over us and you should submit to yours because God created nations and Jesus rules over the nations. And to say that all levels of hierarchy, when it's not opposed to God, we should submit to it. Are you part, I know I'm going to step on toes here, are you a part of a homeowner's association? Submit to it or go through the legal process of getting it overturned. But it's not okay just to be rebels for the sake of being rebels. And we have to stand up for these things and all the rest and not be afraid to engage our coworkers and our neighbors and our family. Because we've all got people in our family who are far on the other side of this. Now we should do it lovingly and grace, graciously, humbly, not looking to pick a fight, we as Christians ought to be able to talk about these things without being judgmental and condemning and hateful. But you know, the enemy would love to divide us too. You may not agree with everything I'm saying here. That's fine. Let's talk. But if you go out here and call me names and say you're mad at me, or if I go out here calling you names and say I'm mad at you, we are not honoring Christ in that. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. Maybe you can share something with me that I don't know that will help me see a different perspective and vice versa. That's the Christian way. We talk. We are not afraid to speak our mind, but we want to listen to other people's minds as well. Most importantly, we've got to preach the gospel because we're not going to transform culture if hearts aren't transformed. 
So we preach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so the Spirit will come and transform people and they will see the lies of those who want to destroy Christianity and they fight for the right side. We have a role to play here and we cannot be silenced. In this nation where we have the freedom of speech and we have the voting rights, we have the ability to impact our culture, we must take it. And I'm, in, in, in arts... In literature, in music, the four robes, if you can wear any of the four robes, I encourage you to do so for the cause of Christ, not for the cause of politics, but for the kingdom of God. As we close now, I'm going to invite one of our elders, Dwight, to come up and pray for us. And we must remember, we must be praying people. I'm telling you, the enemy is alive and well in our world, in our church, in our own hearts. He is striving to bring division and destruction. We must not let him, and we must not give in to the, the lies that are being told. So Dwight, would you come and pray for us? Like last week, I'll be happy to entertain some questions from the floor. Yeah. These are smart guys. Put this stuff forth. What do they say to make to? They know we're not generally good. They think we are, but they see history and what's going on. I mean, they really think that everybody's going to do the right thing, knowing history and their own hearts and all that. How do they justify that? Yeah. The question is, uh, these are really smart guys, uh, like Marx. You're saying is a smart guy. Um, do they really believe in in the goodness of humanity? You look in your own heart, you look at people around you, how can that be? For Marx, at least, uh, he really did see capitalism as the big evil. And if we could just destroy capitalism, then the goodness of man would come, come forth. So man's not inherently sinful and wicked, but the system has provoked all this oppression and stuff in man. Which, of course, is just, it's self-contradictory. How, uh, how did we get here, right? If man is basically good, how did we ever develop an evil system if we didn't have evil people to develop those systems? But that's, uh, that's where we would go. I would say the, the Frankfurt School and the, the, uh, the mid-20th century folks were not worried so much about answering the question whether man is basically good. They were just trying to cause an overthrow of the oppressors. They didn't really comment too much on. Uh, again, they were very Freudian. Uh, Marcuse disagreed with Freud in that Freud said you are suppressing your uh, uh, unconscious desires. And Marcuse said, no, no, there's way more coming in from the outside that caused you to clam up. Um, but they're not really interested in talking about evil, inherent evil at that point because they're, they're atheists. They, they have no basis for really judging good and evil. It all becomes either economical uh, or philosophical. Good question. Yeah, Troy? Yeah, good question. Uh, I said that uh, taxation can be 
thievery, and yet the scripture tells us to pay taxes. How do we balance those? We may do a whole sermon on government uh, here to, and address some of that more uh, exhaustively, but yeah, the bottom line is the, the scripture clearly says we are to pay taxes to whom taxes are due. The question behind that is what is the government's role, and should we pay taxes to the government to support the things the government should not be doing? So, for instance, I would argue the government has no business in education. So, I would like my tax dollars to have no part in paying for education. I would say that is a taxation that should be eliminated from our system. The government is to punish evildoers to commend good. The government is not to take the place of parents. The government is not to take the place of... of um, uh, doctors and, and health care and all that, that's, that's getting way beyond their means. So, in a nutshell, I would answer it that way. So it's not a matter of how much they're taxing, but what they're using the taxes for. So if someone were to, if a government were to tax you 70% to maintain the best standing defensive, national defensive system you've ever seen, that'd be justified? Uh, if the government wanted to tax us 70% to have an amazing military, um, I would have to wrestle with that from the standpoint of, and, and I would add police enforcement to that as well, because I think it's, the sword is more local law enforcement than it is global law enforcement. But let's say they wanted to raise taxes seventy percent to have a uh, to eliminate crime in our in our nation. Uh, at least I can justify the purpose. Can I justify? Can, would I agree that that is? Um, reasonable taxation, probably not. But again, in America, we have the ability to do something about it. So at that point, if, I'm, if we as a culture are electing people who are gonna take 70% of our dollars to pay for law enforcement, I bear some of the blame for that because I'm uh, voting, so I need to rally up people to say, hey, let's, let's see if we can get by with 15% or 10% or 5% to accomplish that. But at least it's a different question in my mind. That I could justify biblically. They do bear the sword for a purpose. They're not supposed to educate our people. What's this? I have a question on my phone. Oh, Alicia has a question. Oh, no, it's not Alicia's question. All right, here's a question from somebody. What is the proper response of a college student at a secular university who wants to speak up but will lose good grades and professional opportunities for doing so? Whew, yeah. Uh, let me read it again. What is the proper response of a college student at a secular university who wants to speak up but will lose good grades and professional opportunities for doing so? What does this look like? Yeah, you know, we, we the, the New Testament, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. And we in the West have had very, very little persecution. I mean, to have somebody, you know, tell you to take your fish bumper sticker off your car or whatever, that, that's not persecution. I would tell you to take that fish bumper sticker off your car. It's, it's tacky. No, I'm kidding. Uh, this is the kind of persecution Jesus was talking about. So as hard as it is, I think you have to ask the question, which is more important to me, to speak up for the truth and suffer the consequences or to keep my mouth shut and go ahead and get the good grades and get the vocational opportunities that come. Now, I can't answer that for you. 
And I'm not saying it's as easy as every time you speak up and lose your, your benefits, but it's at least something you need to consider that maybe the Lord is saying, you got to trust me with your vocation, trust me with your job and your education. It's time to stand against the lies and suffer whatever persecution comes. I mean, believe me, I feel the way of this these days every time I stand up here and preach because it's on the internet. The internet's forever. And you never know when someone's going to do a quick search of the YouTube video, which they can now analyze every word that comes out of my mouth in an instant and come knocking on my door and say, hey, you're a perpetrator of hate. Am I gonna stop preaching? No. Maybe you need to join me and say, whatever it costs, I'm gonna stand up for truth. That's a hard thing, but it may be time for that. So again, I'm not, uh, uh, there's obviously, we need to have a deeper discussion in, uh, if I were going to advise you, but that's my general response is, find a new school, take the risk, don't cower to the other side. What? Oh yeah, I wrote a paper on evolution in college. And uh, in order to get a passing grade, I, I answer all the questions perfectly. And the professor said, I'll give you an A for your content, but I want to give you an F because after explaining what evolution is, I debunked the whole thing. And she didn't like that at all. I want to give you an F because I hate your, your commentary, but since you answered my questions correctly, I have to give you an A. Yeah, good, that's exactly what I wanted. I made you read my stuff, but I said what you wanted to hear me say. Uh, and it could have cost me. Other questions? Any more? Yeah, the question is, if, uh, if Marxism defines capitalism as evil, in order to have something that's evil, you have to have the good, and you have to have a truth. Uh, again, you're assuming something there, brother, that logic and rationality, uh, I'm serious, you laugh, but I'm, this is exactly what they would say, that it's objective. They don't care about objectivity and rationality. They would say, look at the evidence, look at the humiliation of the laborer. They saw the, the worker bee as, as soon as he did more work than is required to take care of his own needs, that surplus labor is given to the evil owner and it alienates him from humanity. That's all the justification they needed to say it was evil because look what it's doing to people. You're talking about Western rationality, which is just a tool of the man to keep the working class under the thumb of the ruling class. So they wouldn't even bother engaging with you rationally because that defeats their purpose. Good question. It's very frustrating for us who are manipulated by Western culture to not have a rational argument.
they actually don't like either side. And his encouragement to us, now he's not a Christian, was that we are waking up. And um, my hope and prayer is that they wake up to the gospel, not that they wake up to a political party or a position. And so he asked, what was the issue when you were my age that woke you up? And how did you go about it? And I've always, when I woke up, so to speak, to Christ, the first issue is the pro-life movement. Um, and then I encouraged him that the pro-life movement has grown a little bit by little bit, more and more and more. If you watch the history of the pro-life movement, we have gained amazing ground. Um, for him, not being a Christian, I just kind of planted a few seeds, of course, asking the Lord to water it. But in general, I just want to encourage all of you, they're not affiliated. And he's actually very, very popular, very, very accepted. He goes to the University of Michigan. Very bright young man. However, they want to know the truth. I want you to encourage you to get out there and don't be afraid. Share the gospel. They're right. And the, 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 the door may close. We don't know. And uh, he wants to wake up. I encouraged him. You know, maybe it's the uh, free speech issue that wakes your generation up. I don't know. Hmm. But don't be afraid to speak up. We have to exercise it. That's good. Thank you. Yeah, for those uh, online, I'm not going to try to recap everything. It was just a comment that urging us to, to not be afraid to stand up and to speak because there may be people who are open to being persuaded against everything else they're, they're seeing. Um, if you have followed at all, read or listened to Jordan Peterson, he's a non-believer uh, who is a longtime professor at the University of Toronto. And as a pagan, he sees where this is going. And he's been for years speaking up against cultural Marxism. And I'm thinking, man, if this guy who doesn't know the Lord can see so obviously where this is going and what the left is doing, we as Christians who, who know better, we have to see it, but he is speaking out. It's cost him a lot. We need to be all the more willing to stand firm and to speak out. And, and again, not just fighting for our position, but who knows how many people we can lead a different way. The Spirit might show up and bring revolution, uh, not revolution, revival, spiritual revolution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the question is, if they won't, if they're not interested in reason and logic, how do we, how do we engage? Uh, depends on who the they are. Now, we should acknowledge there's a small number of people who understand the underlying philosophy and who truly have an agenda to destroy everything. And then there's this whole wave of people, maybe even who she was talking about, this whole group of people who are just caught up in the stream. And they might go march in a BLM riot at night, one night, and then get along with somebody the next day, and you would never know, because it's not like they're grinding that axe all day, every day. They just kind of got caught up in the emotion, and some friend invited them, and like, yeah, that sounds good. And then, they, you know, they, they, those people, we, we need to handle differently. I would use the model of Jesus. When he's engaging with the Pharisees who had an agenda and who knew better, man, he let them have it. He called out their hypocrisy, he, he just, and he belittled them. I mean, literally tore, tore them down. He used satire and sarcasm and just ripped them down. 
because they were destroying, they were the shepherds who were fleecing the, the sheep. With the masses of people, he was largely gentle and winsome trying to say, let me show you the different way. Let me teach you truth in contrast to what you're hearing from them. So I would say follow that as well. When we're dealing with people, you know, college professors, university professors, leaders, politicians, those in a position to really do damage, call them out. And satire is a great way. Mock them. Not in a, I shouldn't say that. Um, satire, expose their hypocrisy. You can't ration, you can't reason with them, but to just expose it with satire can be somewhat effective. With this group over here that's just kind of following along, have discussions and show them I'm not whatever this monster capitalist you've been told, or I'm not this monster rightist, alt-right person you've been told. I care about you, and I care about truth. And of course, get to the gospel. You know, that's, that's, that's where the transformation is gonna take place. Um, so I think it depends on who you're talking to. But you are foolish to think you can lay out a perfectly compelling, rational argument. They'll say, oh, thank you for enlightening me. I was ignorant, but now I know the truth. Not gonna happen. Do I have another question? Same question? Excellent. Anyone else? Yes. I assume you're, you mean apart from the gospel? I, so. I mean, the gospel would be the first thing, but yeah, the question is, uh, what are the major issues? And, and I would disagree that capitalism is a secondary issue in this. Uh, I would say those four things I mentioned are crucial. We, we can't give up authorities. We absolutely cannot give up family and the family order. You know, the patriarchy is the, the great enemy of the socialist. They hate the patriarchy, which means the he husband is the head of his wife, the father is the, the head of his ho household. They hate that with a passion. We must make sure we uphold biblical patriarchy. It is, it is right and true. And so that, uh, that's not a secondary issue. That's a main issue. Uh, nationals, na nations rather. Uh, not nationalism in the sense, again, that America is... You know, it, it, it's almost synonymous with Christianity, but the idea that we, we should not look for the obliteration of nations and make everything global, that is key to their success. We must not just say, yeah, wouldn't it be great if all nations were removed? No, that's not okay because that's not biblical. And the, uh, the uh, private property, it is a major issue. So I would say those are not secondary, those are primary. So engage in all those things. Uh, it's not okay to take somebody else's stuff. It's not okay for the government to do it. Uh, it's not okay for anybody to do it. It's not okay for people to go and burn down cities because they feel like they are justified because of this event that happened over here. Y you can't stand by and watch the rioting and looting. Did you, did you hear the gal last week that was saying that all the rioting, the looting that's going on, that's reparations for racism of the past? And they try to bully people into submission to their philosophy. 
And we have to say, no, if you hear somebody say that, that's just reparations. No, it's not reparations. It's evil. It's wicked. Those people need to go to jail because we care about real justice. We'll, we'll talk more about social justice down the road, but it, it, it's a big deal. You can't give up capitalism and person's property and that breaking the law means you should suffer the right consequences of breaking the law. If we give that up, we give up the gospel because now we have no basis to call people to repentance of their sin because God can't judge anybody if there's no justice either. So I, no, I wouldn't put any of those in the category of secondary issues. They're all front and center right now because the Marxists have brought it here. Question? Hmm, Yeah, the comment is we, we have to speak truth to, to the unrighteousness in our culture, uh, and we might end up like John the Baptist, uh, being beheaded for our belief, but that's, our, that's part of our role. And, and where the, the bullying of Marxism has infiltrated the church is, I didn't, get, I didn't have time to get into it, but another thing that came out of the Marcuse and Frankfurt School was politically correct speech. That's been around forever, for, well, for, for, for 80 years. And if they can tell you to not say mean things, then they can push their agenda without pushback. So it's mean to say it's not okay for these two men to get married to each other. It's mean, right? Homophobic. The Frankfurt School guys are the ones who invented homophobia as a term because they're bringing in Freudian ideas and you're afraid of someone fully expressing their sexuality. And you know the weight of this, right? When you have a member of your family who wants to have a gay marriage, you've just been confronted. Which side are you going to stand on? You've heard me say this before. It is my belief, biblically, that you are not permitted by Jesus to go to a gay wedding. You can go to a birthday party of a gay person because you're not endorsing their homosexuality to go to their birthday party. But if you go to a wedding, your role in the audience is to say that I support the union of these two people. And you cannot, as a Christian, support the union of two people of the same sex. And that will cost you if you say no. It'll cost you big time. You're gonna be considered a bigot. How could you destroy a family like this? Don't you love so-and-so? You say, yeah, I do love. I love Jesus more, and I can't support this. I'll come to the birthday party. I can't come to the wedding ceremony. Kind of long, very long lines of what you're saying there. Yeah. Anybody else? Hold on. You've been preempted by technology. Except I don't have my class. No, you don't.
if a cultural Marxist won't listen to, oh, that's what I just said. That's, what are some significant steps parents need to take to protect our children in these days in terms of education, discipline, social atmosphere, and government control? Yeah. Um, I am thankful that we have people in our church who are serving and teaching in schools. I will tell you, I think if you have school-aged children, you need to be very, very, very careful about sending your kids to a government-controlled school. We call them public schools, but let's, let's be real, they are controlled by the government with an atheistic Marxist agenda. And it takes a lot of work to overcome. If, if they're sitting under teachers that are spending 30 or, four hours, 30 or 40 hours a week indoctrinating with this, really hard for you to overcome that. Again, I'm thankful we have Christians in the school system. And until the school system is changed, I hope Christians will get involved because at least in those settings they can word things in such a way that are not so de destructive. But be very careful and recognize it doesn't matter where you send your kids. And homeschooling is not like the perfect answer and Christian school is not the perfect answer. The bottom line is, as parents, you are responsible for the education of your children. You, you're not allowed to hand that off to the state. You're not allowed to hand, off that, hand that off to the church. So whatever they're being taught, you have to make sure that you know what it is they're teaching and make sure it lines up with the scripture. So that means a lot of involvement. I mean, for Krista and I, after we examined all that, we realized we're going to practically be homeschooling anyway if we're going to spend all the time we need to to make sure that we know what they're learning. So we might as well just, just go that route. That's not the right route for everybody. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But just recognize as parents, you are responsible for what your kids are learning. And don't be naive enough to think you can hand them off to somebody else and they will not be indoctrinated. Secondly, and maybe, uh, I was going to say as importantly, you've got to have conversations. You've got to have these conversations with your kids. If your kids are not aware of what's happening in the world, that's on you. You've got to say, hey, they're burning down Seattle. Let's talk about why. And here's the justification they're giving for burning down Seattle. Here's why that's not okay. Well, let's talk about private property. Let's talk about sexuality. If you're not having discussions with your kids at 8, 9, 10 years old about sex, you're already behind the curve. Somebody else is talking about sex. So we have to. Uh, maybe there was a day when you could wait till they were going to get married and have the talk the night before. Those days are long gone because there are tons of voices that are shouting perversions to our kids. And what's the role of government? What, how do we submit to authorities? All of these things, we as parents have to take the lead in having these conversations. The church will come along and help. We're going to have these discussions in youth group, and we'll have them now. And I know elders who are inviting kids over to their homes. Let's just talk about this stuff. And that's all great, but you as parents are the primary responsible party for your kids. So you've got to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Can't hear you. Sorry. Start again.
Uh, so the question is, uh, is it similar to not attending a gay wedding? Can you attend the wedding of someone who is divorced or has been in fornication? Is that, is that the heart of it? Uh, would I consider it fornication with divorced couples getting married? Um, that's a hard one. I would want to dive in and find out what, are the, what were the reasons for the divorces? What's the uh, mindset of the people? Uh, and this could branch into a much longer conversation that I'm going to spend here, but I'll just say quickly here, and then you and I can talk more about it if you want to. Um, if, if the divorce occurs... For what I see, uh, and this is, again, just my opinion, uh, divorce occurs because of uh, the reasons the Bible gives that are allow a person to divorce and remarry, then I would have no problem attending that wedding. If, uh, if they just got tired of each other and got divorced, there was no adultery involved, and they divorce each other, and then this guy decides to marry another gal, um, I probably would not be willing to attend that wedding. I would want to ask questions because there might be more going on than, than I realize, but objectively, if, they, if this divorce was because I'm tired of you, for whatever reason, irreconcilable differences, and I want to marry this person, in God's eyes, this first relationship is still intact. And so now they are entering into an adulterous relationship over here. But again, I wouldn't just make assumptions. I would want to have the conversations and find out more of the story. Um, so we can, we can, let's finish that another time. Other questions? Going once, going twice, going to lunch. All right, thanks. <laughs>